episode 149 of the Pilot to Pilot podcast takes off now. The Pilot to Pilot podcast is brought to you by the Finer Points. They have an amazing ground school app for the knowledge you need to fly. To learn more, visit learnthefinerpoints.com. Hello, this is Mike Iles. I'm the Senior VP of Weather at DTN. AV Nation, welcome to the Pilot the Pilot Podcast. My name is Justin Seams and I am your host. First off, I want to say Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. This episode is coming out three days before Christmas. So if you just opened up those $550 brand new Apple headphones and you want to stunt on the gram, make sure you're throwing on the Pilot the Pilot Podcast while you're doing that. Uh, today's episode is with Mike Eilitz. Mike Eilitz is playing a huge role in aviation when it comes to weather. He has done a lot of work when it comes to wind shear, when it comes to microbursts, and now air turbulence. We've all experienced it, we've all been in it, and we all have our experiences and never want to do it again. So listen to this episode and learn what Mike DTN, the company he works for, what they're doing to help airlines, what they're doing to help pilots to get around clear air turbulence, how they're forecasting it, how it's getting better, and even what the future of clear air turbulence looks like and how it could be getting worse with global warming. Even Nation, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you do, please leave us a review on iTunes. Follow us on Instagram at pilot If you want to support the show, you can either do so with shoppilotthepilot.com or head over to Patreon, patreon.com slash pilot. Aviation Nation, I don't want to keep you all any longer. As I said earlier, Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. And without any further ado, here's Mike Eilitz. Mike, what's going on? Welcome to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Hey, Justin. Good to be on today. This is awesome. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. Uh, Jay reached out to me. It was uh, like a month ago, I think now. And he's like, hey, you need to get Mike on. He has some really good information about clear air turbulence. And as pilots, we deal with turbulence more than we want to. And passengers have to feel it as well. So I figured, why not? Let's talk about it. I don't think I've done it before. So here's the perfect time. Well, that's awesome. And you know, our, our company does a lot of uh, a lot of uh, have a lot of customers in, in the aviation space and, and clear air turbulence is one of the most important uh, products that we provide, you know, forecasts and, and routing around it and other things. But I have history goes way back in uh, doing research in, in CAT and other things in, in, in the aviation weather space. So excited to talk about it. Yeah. Why don't you go back and kind of start to the beginning of where either you found out about clear air turbulence or you kind of had a passion, if that's the right word for, it, or just your work kind of went that way toward aviation and turbulence and other uh, meteorological factors that come into play with aviation. Go back and, and talk us through uh, how you even got involved in something like this. So it, it goes back a long time. Uh, you know, I got a bachelor's and master's degree in meteorology and I worked at the National Severe Storms Laboratory and to, to put a little bit of a, a calendar on me, uh, there was a, on uh, August 2nd, 1985, there was a microburst that uh, caused an accident near DFW airport and a plane trying to land at the airport there. And uh, that sparked a huge, you know, decade long uh, set of research and the, the development of the terminal Doppler weather radar program. And I was, you know, young at the time and jumped in and did some research right after my master's thesis. My next bottle of research was around microbursts and, and then, you know, so then over time, I started leading teams and being part of things with the National Severe Storms Laboratory and MIT Laboratory and and uh, National Center for Atmospheric Research and become it became, you know, this big aviation weather group, if you will. And and then I had my own experience with CAT where I was flying on a Southwest flight. This is probably in the early 1990s, maybe mid 1990s. I was flying on a, a Southwest flight that 
puddle jump between different uh, spots, but it was from Wichita to, to St. Louis at the time. And a pilot flew around a thunderstorm and when he got in the back end of it, we just dropped and, you know, flight attendants hit the ceiling and uh, broken arms and, and, you know, wine everywhere and everything else. And so that got me more enthused about the whole cat side. So I started to get involved with some of the cat research, but uh, didn't do that for more than a year or two, but have stayed well aware of it. And uh, and then in 2000, started our own company called Weather Decision Technologies. And, and from there, we've done a lot of different things in the aviation space, as well as many other places. But uh, and then we got bought by DTN in 2018, and they've then always been the premier uh, weather provider to the aviation marketplace. And and uh, cat forecasting is a really big component of that. When would you say the aviation industry or the weather industry or any whatever industry I'm the what I'm looking for, when did they start taking kind of weather and airplanes more seriously or the the drastic effects? Because usually in aviation, uh, they don't change anything until a tragic some, some kind of tragedy happens like DFW or uh, there was one plane that I think flew through hail in Atlanta and had landed in a, on a road and killed a bunch of people and they didn't really start, aviation doesn't start thinking about stuff until something has already happened. So when was that the event in DFW where everyone kind of woke up and was like, all right, we got to look into this. We got to avoid this in the future. I think for microburst, there was three or four events, you know, three or four accidents that happened in a few in a few near misses, all in that four or five year period. But I think the DFW one was the one that everyone went, oh shit, if if I can say that yeah, on your sorry. podcast. <laughs> um, and uh, and and really, it really forced you know the government to jump in and start doing regulations and you know and a lot of work and research on it. So I think that was that sort of seminal moment where everybody went, this is a, this is a, not just a one-time problem. This is a big problem. Um, you know, such a, a obvious and, and, you know, thing that was happening. And, and, uh, so I think that really kicked it off and you're, you're right. There's a, that, that event that happened in Atlanta when there's hail involved, there's, uh, and then I think clear air turbulence doesn't get quite the, quite the play because it's, each event doesn't bring a plane down and kill people typically, but it does, you know, you know, what we've seen is about a billion dollars of cost per year to the airline industry. And so if you all add it all up, it becomes a big thing. And so there's definitely been a amount of research, but never the full, uh, what's the, you know, the full amount like was brought into the microverse research, uh, kind of thing at the, back in the late eighties and, and all of 1990s, uh, that work, uh, was funded very, very heavily, Whereas the cat turbulence, kind of the cat part was funded at, at a lesser amount, but for many, many long years now. Yeah. Were you pretty involved with, uh, with the wind shear and everything, all the uh, improvements and figuring that out? Yeah, I, I was, I, early on, I did, develop, I did re- my own research on microbursts and how they were detected, detectable by Doppler radars and, and then got involved with the terminal Doppler weather radar program and led a team that built the gust front algorithm for that. So there was a microburst algorithm and a gust front algorithm for that. And, uh, and it was part of the team that did the testing. I spent a lot of time um, in, in air traffic control towers, actually watching plane, you know, watching as planes would come in. And, and, and when they did the first prototypes of the terminal Doppler weather radar program, we'd sit and see how, how it could be used, what's the best use cases, how the display should work, those kinds of things. So heavily involved with the, uh, the wind shear side of things. How long does that kind of process take? Everything in aviation takes, <laughs> and government and everything takes forever to be implemented. Uh, I know an idea oh, yeah. can come up. I'm sure you guys re- realize what you needed to do, but it's different from what you need to do and actually doing it. How long does it 
it usually take to compile and create something like that and actually get it implemented to try to help and save lives? Well, in that case, you know, it's, it's a 15 year problem at yeah. least, or, you know, process to, to get things, you know, you get to do the research to understand it, then you got to figure out what the best solution is, then you got to test it, then you got to go to operational mode. So you're typically talking 15, 20 years for a lot of things like this from the early, early views on how it should work and what it should be and what is the problem to all the way to the end. And, and this was a, you know, I think concerted effort to, to, to do the microverse. So a lot of funding was thrown at it and it still took 15 years. It's not something that can go much faster than that, honestly, just because of all the regulations and you don't want to make the system worse. You know, it's like sort of the 737 max problem, right? You think you put out a new right new and it ends up being worse. You don't want to get into that mode. So a lot of, a lot of testing went on before anything was ever deployed. What was the thought process of uh, meteorologists, of pilots, of air traffic control, of airlines uh, before those events, before microbursts, before the kind of we understood more about wind shear? Was it just like, uh, we did we not really understand what it was? Did we know something was there and what to look for, but didn't have the proper warning systems? Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, it was really a lot of... Well, a lot of misconceptions because we didn't know. Basically, we knew that you know if you'd fly in the middle of a thunderstorm, that it might be a not, might be a problem. But <laughs> didn't really understand the dynamics of it, right? Of, of that the certain thunderstorms had this strong outflow, and people were used to think it was the downdraft that were pushing planes down, but it's not necessarily that. It's it's the wind shear as you fly through a microburst at low altitude that you can you know you get all of a sudden you got these winds going the opposite direction and and uh, it's pushing you to the ground, and so. You know, the combination of heavy rain, which everybody thought that was the worst thing you could experience was now all of a sudden you have, you might lose, you know, some of those at microburst, you could lose a hundred knots of, of, of airspeed in, in a matter of, you know, a mile or so. And uh, those kind of things, people didn't understand until these accidents started happening. So it was kind of a, I hate to use this word, but it's kind of a cowboy thing. You know, pilots make, pilots make the decision for themselves. And, and uh, when they start getting, you know, I mean, through that thunderstorm last time, why is it going to be a problem this time? Um, so really forward, you know, once you understand the issue, training was actually a big part of, of the solution too. It wasn't just that we could detect microbursts, but it was training about what microbursts are, when, you know, how you might experience them. If you do experience something, how do you get out of it? Uh, those kinds of things are just as much, just as important as the system that we built. Yeah. And I'm sure you realize that pilots are a very interesting bunch of people and it's hard to have them change. Once they're set in their ways, they, they don't like to be told what to do. And I mean, uh, I, I've seen that firsthand, not in the, in the plane, but I've seen pilots in that kind of macho mentality that they have and that I'm the best. I don't need any help in that aspect. A lot of senior pilots are part of the, is, you know, the strategy and how we're going to deploy this and how we're going to do the training. Um, it's, they were a key part of uh, the whole process for sure. Yeah, definitely. And, and it, it has helped. I mean, obviously we have more awareness. You fly in and there's, there's wind shear warnings on TAFs. There's uh, people understand a little bit more about thunderstorms and to stay away from them. And we know more about how close you should get to them and how close, how far away you should be to them. Um, outside of uh, still not getting into the clear turbulence, but what do you think has been the number one kind of relevant, I can't talk. What has been the number one like revelation that uh, weather and pilots and airlines have had uh, to make flying safer or to make it more comfortable for passengers? I think, you know, as you look at the weather industry, um, 
we've gotten so much better at forecasting over, say, the last 10 years or even 20 years. And we talk about, and you know, what we can do today in, in a, a two-day forecast is as good as a, a one-day forecast was 10 years ago. And that just keeps doing that every 10 years. And I, I think the reality is, is that at some point there was a, t- a, a, a crossing point, if you were a tipping point, where the skill and, and accuracy of the forecast and how they could be applied to aviation had got good enough where pilots and and airlines and operators in the FAA realized that they really could use forecasts even a day in advance or a few hours in advance to make decisions versus just kind of hold and wait and hope. And uh, now they're making decisions, you know, shut down air, air, you know, airports a day in advance sometimes now based upon forecasts. And they would never have done that a decade ago and things like that. So I just think that there's been this kind of crossing point, tipping point, whatever you want to call it, where the quality of the forecasts and the knowledge of how good they are on the side of the aviation industry has made a big difference in, the, in that last five to 10 years for sure. Yeah. What brought your attention to clear air turbulence? Was that like, well, this is kind of done. We figured out how the best way that we can we can figure out uh, wind shear and microburst now. So I need to look for what's next. Or was it just you kept hearing about reports and you said you actually went through some clear air turbulence flying southwest. And then when you're like, all right, I got to help fix this. Well, my personal interest came from that Southwest flight. Um, and, uh, um, but, you know, there's been a constant research. And I think once we got in, you know, once I started my own company and we got into the aviation weather space, you know, providing weather information to to groups like ForeFlight and, and others um, and Boeing, for example, they were driving the requirement of how do we do a good job of forecasting CAT? How do we do, you know, let, let's get that in our displays. Let's get that in our systems because our customers are asking for it. So I think it became unlike the wind shear part, which is an obvious thing that we needed to do. I think clear air turbulence was driven as much by the customers being the airline industry as much as the government research or the regulators in the process, because it was such a big cost item to them. And even, a, you know, it's even a, PR nightmare for, for airlines when they fly through, you know, intense, severe turbulence because it has, you know, it gets on the news and today's world there, people are tweeting from their airline, you know, from their seat, yeah. all those things. Uh, it's, it's really become a, a really pull from the industry themselves, trying to save money, try to keep their self safe. And then, you know, just try to keep their customers happy too, is all part of that. Well, let's talk a little bit about clear turbulence and when it first, I mean, it's always been a problem, but it's also one of those things yep. that you're just flying and you hit turbulence and it's really bad and then it stops and you're like, oh, okay. When did it go from just like people being like, well, that's a part of flying. Like it happens every once in a while to actual, the airlines care about it. Was it just events after events and the airlines started losing money and they realized, hey, we need to figure out how to stop this so we don't lose any more money in lawsuits or whatever it may be. Uh, What was the process? And was there like one event that triggered everything just like the DFW crash or was it kind of a multitude and a, a loss of money over time? My, my sense is that it's more of a multitude of things that happen over time. And, and, you know, if you start looking at the, if you really believe that is a billion dollar cost to the airline industry, that, that's just the U.S. airline industry um, per year. At some point, people are going to realize it and start driving solutions. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we've done and I think really creates a lot of value for those clients is not only we forecasting clear air turbulence, but also thunderstorms and other things along, especially long haul routes. And at some point, there's just a, as they try to, you know, they're trying to get better and better and better over time with, you know, saving fuel costs, uh, minimizing risk, 
um, cutting down on, uh, on lots of different parameters like that, using more analytics and more more solutions to try to make themselves as efic- efficient and as effective as possible. Weather just became part of that, right? Clear air turbulence was a cost item. It was a it stopped, you know, if they had to fly way around areas versus just small, small, you know, only a few few kilometers or nautical miles around a, a jet stream, they could save money by getting there faster and still stay safe. So it's just part of, I think, of a long-term, I call it Kaizen kind of capability, just get better and better over time. And they realized that to do that, they need to do a really good job at understanding where CAT was forecasted a few hours in advance, you know, 12 hours in advance for long haul flights or whatever. So they could really minimize uh, risk and maximize uh, cost savings. So how do you even start? Uh, clear turbulence, you can't see it. You don't know, like there's no, there's really no way to predict it. At least there wasn't. And there's kind of just like this mythical bump in the air and then you keep going. How do you start? How do you even, there's so much data to look at. There's so much data. Like how do you even know where to begin when you're researching something like that? So you're right. You know, you could, it's clear air turbulence is the name of it, right? Because it's in clear air. There might be a few serious clouds around associated with it, you know, at times, but it's really clear air and you can't see it as a pilot. Um, however, in, you know, in our, when you send balloons up and we run models, forecasts, we can see where jet streams are and, and we know where jet streams are. And, and typically the worst clear air turbulence is besides mountain waves that are down low, right? But the, at higher up, um, it's typically near a jet stream because wind shear of some sort. So wind shear either in the horizontal or in the vertical associated with a few other things cause the, the, this, this turbulence, right? And uh, so we are able to using high resolution models through different diagnostics, through lots of tests, comparing CAT you know, events with what the weather was like that time, we basically can use a machine learning te- technique to determine what are the parameters that are most important to to predict or, or analyze and predict or forecast, if you will, uh, clear air turbulence. So you can't detect it directly, but you can sort of say these are the ingredients uh, for, for CAT, and we can forecast each one of those ingredients. And from that, we can then in a sophisticated way, you know, surmise that this is the area and this is the time and this is the vertical height. This is like a cube and with it's a 4D picture basically, right, of where where cat will be. Um, and so that's how we then forecast it. And it's, so it's, it's about jet streams, wind shear in the vertical and horizontal. It's about atmospheric stability in those areas. Com- combination of all those turns into a almost like an ingredients for a cake, right? But we have ingredients for cat, if you will, and we use those to to estimate uh, where cat will be and so how strong you, it will be. So pretty much what you say, like you said, you found the ingredients that are needed for clear turbulence to be to be out there. But just because you found those doesn't necessarily guarantee that you will find clear turbulence in the area, right? But it's just a greater chance. It's a it's a greater chance, and we you know we've done all the stats on it, and our probability detection is very high. Um, we've actually combined a different a few different ingredients, if you will, and a few different techniques, and you know probability detection. If you combine all those, is is on the order of eighty five percent. So we will miss some, and there's some false alarms. But the if, you know if if you can be say eighty eighty eight I think eighty eight percent is the number actually of probability detection and false alarms down in the ten percent area. Um, it creates value for the airlines then. So sometimes they'll still fly into turbulence. We, we try not to ha- hope that never happens. Uh, but and sometimes we'll tell them there's there's clear turbulence in a space and it's not there, um, and so it's costing them extra money to fly around it or whatever. But on average, we're saving, you know, a very large percentage of the time, we're actually keeping people safe and, and saving fuel. 
is there any outlier that just doesn't make sense? Like sometimes there's clear turbulence and you never could have possibly predicted it based on what the ingredients are showing. Is there anything that still is just confusing to scientists and just like no idea why this is happening? There's definitely our rogue events, I'll call them, where um, things happen. And, and you know, I think eventually when people study those events, they can figure out what happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it doesn't really fall into what we would say, hey, this is the standard clear air turbulence uh, case. I, I saw something recently where, uh, uh, like, they, they surmised anyway that the some sort of a – there's a there's – a, a jet stream, there was, you know, turbulence on the side and somehow it kind of rolled together and just rolled off in, you know, hundreds, hundreds of miles away from the jet stream. And there was still this, this turbulent eddy, if you will, that planes were hitting. So there's definitely these rogue events that happen. And, and, uh, I think that's, uh, that's probably just going to happen. And we're probably not going to forecast those well, no matter what, honestly. Yeah. How would you see weather changing in the future? I mean, obviously, global warming, um, worse storms, worse hurricanes, bigger tornadoes, kind of bigger blizzards, everything is just getting intensified and magnified and worse. Do you see clear air turbulence being a part of that? Do you see other factors that are coming up? Like what, I guess my question could be is like, what's your biggest worry for the next 10, 15, 20 years uh, with weather and aviation? Well, I think, Besides all the things we just talked about, intensification of uh, severe events, so just ma- severe events, so it just makes it harder to land and take off, and there be more closures of airports and those things. But uh, there's some pretty interesting studies down there. There's one in 2017 by a guy named Paul Williams, where he, he suggested that in the winter time, so in the winter time in the North Atlantic, especially the long haul routes across the Atlantic, uh, it's, it's you know it's kind of a high time right now for for clear air turbulence. He suggests that by 2050, I think is what he said, um, by that time frame, but growing you know, up to that time, there'll be 150% more clear, you know, severe clear air turbulence, more space covered by clear air turbulence than there is today. And if that becomes true, and it makes sense, I mean, he did it with a, a study that just ran climate models, basically. And basically what he's saying is that, like you said, it, there's more intense lows, there's more intense hurricanes, there's more intense winter storms. That intensity goes all the way up in the atmosphere. It's not just at the ground. And so your jet streams end up being stronger. The wind shears end up being stronger, which generate the, the turbulence. And so it all makes sense. And he suggested that, you know, on average, 150% more uh, turbulence, you know, severe turbulence at that time frame. That's, that's significant. That means it will close airspace for people, uh, for planes to fly uh, and we stay, you know, over time. And uh, that's kind of scary, honestly, because there's enough cat right now that causes inefficiencies in the system. Just think if we, you know, one and a half times that uh, more. I'm not trying to discredit a study or anything, but is there ever any chance that maybe he, he loaded anything wrong or anything was going through? Or are these studies pretty rock solid? Just for, there's going to be someone out there that just goes, I don't trust studies, you know, all that kind of stuff. But just like fully getting out there, are the, the studies, are, are, do they have a good track of being correct? I mean, I know they are studies, so you can't really, they're not going to be future proof, but what's your right. thought on that? Well, I think all the climate studies are really hard. I mean, you know, we have trouble forecasting 10 days in advance. How can you forecast <laughs> Uh, you know, 10, 10 years or even yeah. you know, years in advance. So it, it's notional. It, it, it's done scientifically credibly. Uh, I think there's, you know, it's fraught with errors though, but I, I think there's definitely a, it's not, this one study sits on the shoulders of thousands of other climate, you know, climate studies too, that suggest that there will be more severe weather, that there will be stronger events, which means there'll be more, you know, stronger um 
jet streams, which means there'll be stronger shear. You know, so it all kind of makes sense, common sense. But you know, you have to you have to kind of put a I don't want to say grain of salt, but uh, you know, it's it's yeah. it's well done research. It has a, a good conclusion that makes sense with everything else we're learning. Uh, so I wouldn't I wouldn't you know I think whether it's 150 percent or 100 percent or 20 percent or 200 percent, I think we probably don't know that today. What do you think about the future of aviation? I think it's interesting with 5G, and uh, this might just be more on the ground, but with cars, how cars will be able to talk to each other and share information. Is there a potential world or future where airplanes will be flying around and they can share the meteorological conditions that they're in, and then they can send the information to kind of the brain of the plane and warn it and give it a warning to go away? Is there is that kind of in the works at all? Do you know anything about that? Or is that just kind of a Terminator vision I have going on right now? Well, I think it's it's already here in a lot of ways. Um, we do get data from from aircraft every minute or so as they fly, as they land, and so when they land, we get value valuable information about the sounding, basically, you know, the temperature and winds and and humidity as they land and when they take off. Um, and and some planes are you know have literally every minute or so or every ten minutes across the oceans, which create a lot of value for input into our the weather industry's models. So there's a lot of data that flows already from them. I think we're just kind of in the early stages, though, of, of automated clear clear air turbulence. There are a few planes now that are have these sensors on the side of the plane. So in real time, we actually get the output of how, how much the plane is deviating, so how much the turbulence is. So I think we're not more than, say, five to ten years away from all planes reporting where they are, where, where clear, clear air turbulence is based upon the experience. Today, a lot of it's pie reps, right? Their pilots in front of you tell you that, hey, watch out, there's clear air turbulence. Five years from now or ten years from now, the planes will be automatically reporting it, and we'll be able to, as a weather industry, pull that data and send it back up as to alerts to to the crews directly. Today, we actually do a lot of that ourselves. We, we have a solution where once a, a sorry, I'll, I'll back up a little bit. We provide a, say, an airline gives us a, a, a flight plan up to 36 hours in advance. We tell them this is a good flight plan or this plan has these three or four areas that have clear air turbulence associated with them. You might want to change. They might bounce back three or four different plans to us. This is all automated and say, yep, we're going to choose this one because it's safe. And they, and they start flying and then we start tracking that plane. And then if we see that clear air turbulence or a thunderstorm forms in areas that the forecast didn't suggest before, we actually alert not the crew ourselves. We, we, we alert their operations department who then calls the crew and tells them about it. So eventually that will be all automated in a process to make everybody safe and everybody aware. It's not based on a 36 hour forecast or a 12 hour forecast. It's, that's a starting place, but there'll be updates every minutes, few minutes along a flight for less and less. Uh, hopefully it turns into less and less people being actually interacting with clear air Yeah. Is there a way or a future do you see where that gets incorporated to help with ATC where they actually get that information and they can actively tell other airplanes that don't have that capability? Well, we have to go there. I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense, right? Yeah. That, Everybody should be working on the same inf- amount of information, kinds of information. And I think we're still a long ways away from that because then you, then you got the government uh, part of it going to at the same time. But, uh, you know, ultimately there's going to be a 40 cube of weather information that will be updated on a minute by minute basis. And I'm probably talking decades or, or more in the future at this point. But at some point there'll be a 40 cube. So, you know, three, three dimensions and times the fourth dimension will be updated on a few minute 
update rate based upon data from models and whatever else, but also updated from the airplanes themselves, the jets themselves, all the sensors they have on it. And that information will be distilled in some way with machine learning, artificial intelligence or whatever, and then spit back out to the tr- controllers, to the, the pilots, hopefully directly to the operations groups of the airlines. Uh, so everybody knows what's going on and uh, decisions will be made, hopefully in a smart, controlled and uh well-coordinated manner based upon that data. Yeah, and you mentioned ForeFlight, and ForeFlight has helped just transform the general aviation industry. There's a lot of potential there where you might not even need to, to, to go after ATC because every pilot that's flying GA is going to have an iPad or an iPhone or some kind of ForeFlight-equipped tablet or whatever they're doing at that time. Uh, maybe we can figure out a way to through a Sirius or through XM or I don't know, maybe everyone can have that strapped to their knee and then be able to see that and get updates real-time. I think there's a number of pilots that do that today, although I think they're not supposed to do that. (laughs) (laughs) I think a lot of pilots get data through and and see it on their flight as they're flying. And and, uh, um, it's it's an obvious path, right? It's a great, it's a great app, uh, very large uptake in in both uh, general aviation and business jets. And uh, um, yeah, so they have a huge, and they're now part of Boeing too. So Mm -hmm. you, you combine all of that, there's an opportunity for the, the private sector itself to, to create a lot of value for, for pilots, for sure. Yeah. And you yourself are not a pilot from what I gathered, but you've been around the aviation industry for some time. Um, is there any inkling or any, uh, would you ever find yourself up in a small airplane or are you going to stay away and just stick to the weather side? You know, I've, I've flown in a few just with, with friends or whatever, but uh, I probably won't fly, yeah. be a pilot myself. Uh, but, but, you know, I, I, I love it. I mean, I think it's it's a, it's a cool thing. I just haven't don't have the passion for that, I guess. I have a passion for the weather side still. Yeah, that's good. Um, speaking about, so speaking about weather towards newer pilots or people flying small airplanes, uh, a lot of people can get themselves some situations. And you mentioned forecast, how they've improved. Uh, and you mentioned a bunch of tools that they can use. What would you say to someone planning a flight what's the most important uh tools that someone could look at to make sure that they're doing their planning properly uh prog prog charts i know when i was training that was kind of what we would look at was prog charts we use four flight prog charts and kind of see what the fronts are doing um look at the winds and look at the temperatures aloft is there anything else that you would recommend someone to kind of look at to be a good measure of what the flight's going to be like well i think you got the kind of the, the core basics there i mean there's like I said, the models get better and better and better. The, the, the displays get better. I mean, there's a whole bunch of private weather um, displays you can buy in four flights. One, because I know them very, really well, and we provide all the weather content to them. Um, but there's, you know, there's, there's obviously uh, government sites that you can go to, too, and, and, and look at an aviation weather site and other places. But, yeah, I think understanding, you know, IFR, VFR, all those things are really important. Seeing, you know, prog charts from the different model runs um, and then, you know, things you can get in real time or whatever last minute, you know, I'd say that if you can get data that's most up to date, it's probably the most important thing you can, because if you're looking at even a 12 hour old model, it may be quite different than the new, than the new forecast. Yeah, for sure. And um, so microburst were an issue. You, I want to say soft, but we, we know more about them. You move right. on to clear turbulence or knowing more about it. Once you kind of feel like you have done what you, all you can do with clear turbulence, is there anything else that piques your interest in aviation or in weather that you want to work on next? Well, you know, on the aviation weather side, we're, we're starting to really look at how do you help planes understand 
I mean, it now becomes more about efficiency, right? And so, uh, and, and effectiveness. So helping planes or, or, or the operations groups of planes understand exactly what time they will arrive at a given place, whether that be an airport or a different place. So, you know, what's the wind speeds they're flying through? Uh, what's the impact of, of traffic and everything else? So the, there's a big, there's a big problems to solve still that uh, could save the whole industry a lot of money. If somebody could come up with a great way to figure out with machine learning or whatever else, it's a combination of weather and aviation and traffic planning and whatever else to understand exactly when a plane is going to land. And, and so that they can manage that at an airport or the operations group can manage it. So we don't have to wait for, you know, somebody to take the bags off our, our thing for 30 minutes because there wasn't nobody there. We got there early or we got there late or whatever. All those things, I think, is the next probably big push from the airline industry combined with weather, you know, in my mind anyway. All right, so we got the next problem you're going to solve. We're putting it out there. <laughs> I'm going to hold you there to you it. Go. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, perfect. I mean, is there is there anything else you want to touch on with Clear Turbines or anything else uh, about uh, your company or what you guys are doing? Well, I, I think I'll just add that, you know, DTN... And, you know, our company got bought by DTN about two years ago, and now I'm running the weather side there. But, uh, you know, we, we today provide, and I talk about that, you know, providing them 30, up to 36-hour forecast along the route, basically, and then alerts if something goes wrong. We're providing that information to 200 airlines globally now and over about 6,000 business jets. So, oh, wow. you know, it's it's a big service, and it gets better and better all the time because we get feedback from our customers. And I, I think, you know, the private sector is – is really moving the needle for, you know, from the weather side, the private sector is really moving the needle for the aviation industry. And, uh, you know, I think we look to the government quite often to solve our problems, but in, in this case, there's lots of value being brought by the private sector too. And I think DTN's leading that and I'm biased, no doubt, but uh, I, I think there's a lot of value being created. And I think that value really makes a difference for the flying public too, and, you know, not only for the pilots, but for the flying public, get more flights are on time, less, less, you know, encounters with turbulence or other risks. And, uh, I think we're adding a lot of value to the whole system basically on a global basis. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if I can avoid turbulence and aim my flights, sign me up. I will take that flight. I'll fly lower. I'll fly slower. I'll fly farther South, farther North, whatever needs to be. It's like, I don't want to be bumped around anymore than a passenger wants to be bumped around. I want a smooth and boring flight, no matter how long it is. Let's just <laughs> be smooth. That's all we need. Absolutely agree. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, perfect. I appreciate you coming on. I mean, I think that this was very, very helpful in understanding kind of where we stand in technology and in the process of identifying a threat and how to forecast said threat and figure out what we can do and, and the importance of training pilots and the importance of how technology is coming along and helping speed up processes and speed up uh, the capabilities of airplanes, of operators, of tech, just anything, of, of an FMS or even an iPad. So, I mean, the future is extremely bright and I, I I know it is way away, but the way technology is moving, it, I feel like things could be moving a little bit quicker than, than anyone might ever know with what we got coming out. So uh, yeah, the future is bright for, for weather technology, I'll say. And I think that you guys will be able to help us stay safe. And I'm really thankful for you coming on. I really enjoy the conversation and, uh, and I absolutely agree with you. I think there's so much going on in the weather space and the weather industry globally that uh, you just continue to see better and better forecasts and more value created uh, to our broad set of customers. Yeah, definitely. Uh, thank you again so much for coming on. Uh, I appreciate it. Appreciate it.
AV Nation, that is a wrap of episode 149 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And if this is your Christmas present and you are listening on those AirPods and stunt away, <laughs> uh, I don't even know if people say stunt anymore, but that might be dating myself. But AV Nation, thank you so much for listening. Hope you learned something today about weather, about clear turbulence, microburst, wind shear, and just the importance of doing your proper planning and the importance of knowing the threats that might be out there, whether it's you flying, whether it's uh, you making a decision to go fly. So Aviation Nation, I hope you're all staying safe. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. And as always, like I said earlier, please leave us a review. We are so close to 600. We might be at 600 by now, but if you're wanting to leave a review, please leave us a review. It helps so many things. It helps the podcast get traction on iTunes and Spotify and more people can find it. And also make sure you are following us on Instagram. That's where we're the most active. And that's where we're posting all the time an insider's look into what life is like as a private jet pilot. So it's pretty cool. I think it's pretty cool. It is kind of my life, but Aviation, I hope you're enjoying this podcast. Hope you're having a great day. And as always, happy flying.